Shireen Sakali is Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the editor of a number of academic journals, including the Journal of Palestine Studies. She's also a policy member of Al Shabaka and the Palestinian Policy Network. As a historian of capitalism, consumption, and development in the modern Middle East, she has an overriding concern with how individuals, groups, and governments use concepts and material practices to shape the body, the self, and the other. We're at a point now where the death toll in Gaza has climbed to more than 30,000 people, and yet we still can't expect an end to the merciless genocidal attack on Palestinians by the Netanyahu regime in Israel anytime soon. A team of researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins University just released a report called Crisis in Gaza Scenario-Based Health Impact Projections that says we can still save thousands of lives by establishing a ceasefire that would allow the delivery of humanitarian aid as Gaza is, is throttled by Israel. It describes the situation by saying that, quote, in case of a ceasefire now, we would be saving around 75,000 lives. That means that a continuation of the military assault on Rafah will lead to a humanitarian catastrophe at an unimaginable scale. So in this terrifying moment, I spoke with Shireen Sakali about her sense of the roots of this overwhelming, punishing violence in colonial logics of dehumanization. It comes from, she says, civilizational hierarchies that have already been established to secure colonial relations and render whole populations basically disposable. It also comes from silence and denial. In Shireen's words, there's been a repression of people calling for Palestinian liberation that allows the untold horror to keep happening without the resistance and rage that could end it. For a long time, we've been in a situation where knowledge itself, she says, has become a target of war. This epistemicide means there's no relationship between politics and the truth. In Israel, there's a tacit encouragement of the genocide by American imperialists and the agenda of those that believe in this partnership between the United States and Israel in the region. It's a thing that lets the US continue arming Israel with no conditions whatsoever. But this obscuring of the reality of genocide and the jubilation with which settlers are making Gaza unlivable is forcing Shireen, she says, to question everything that she thought she knew about the world or the notion of a rules-based international order. So, you know, we talk about her book Men of Capital, which is a, a, a brilliant and untold history of the Arab world through the lens of Palestinian statehood. She says that, quote, maps are actually violent processes of colonial and state formation and fundamentally constructions in her kind of description of that book. She explains why Palestine contains an abundance of lessons about the future we're heading toward. But we start with the question of the Palestinian child the eviction of Palestinian people from the category of the human and the specter of a violence that aims to erase generations of Palestinian people that have not had a chance at a life. So, you know, uh, I, I just wanted to welcome you, uh, obviously, in, you know, incredibly uh, dire times, like just overwhelming um, 
times where you know the 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 death toll is almost certainly much higher than um, Israel wants to uh, wants people to believe. Right, official the official number um, of Palestinians killed since October seventh is, I believe, twenty seven thousand, which is itself a staggering number, but it is likely a conservative estimate. Um, there's an estimated 7,000 to 8,000 people missing. Um, so it's just, it's unbelievable. And I think the, that's part of the problem. It's difficult for people to fathom. And so I wanted to begin with the question of children, especially, um, and the reality of the sheer number of uh, Palestinian children who have died. Um, the the number is itself, you know, shocking. Uh, over 11,000 children. Um, it's just, yeah, it's too much to bear. Um, and there's been attempts to communicate how, like, what that means. For example, UN Security General Antonio Guterres said that Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder said that um, he's running out of ways to describe the horrors hitting children there. Um, so I think like that is itself telling, right? That he's running out of ways of of kind of articulating it. Um, and yeah, I just wondered if you wanted to kind of speak to why you think communicators keep coming back to this point in their pleas for ceasefire and their, you know, uh, demands for an end to occupation maybe. Like, why do you think the figure of the Palestinian child in particular is sort of central to the campaign of exposing the Zionist regime's genocidal intent? Thank you so much, Scott. And thank you um, for, you know, your real close engagement and taking seriously the work of Palestinian um, knowledge producers and um, creators. It means everything to all of us. Uh, I wanted to say the place that I follow for the most accurate numbers, in case that's helpful. I Every morning I go to Mondawise, actually, which um, records, you know, what day we're in. So we're in, we're in day 133 of this genocide now, which in and of itself is, as you say, beyond fathomable. And if you do go to Mondo Weiss, um, you know, they, uh, they actually are building on the numbers from the Gaza Ministry of Health um, on their Telegram channel. And, um, you know, they also follow different rights groups who put the estimates uh, uh, at higher uh, numbers. So the numbers as we know them today are 28,775 Palestinians killed in Gaza. At least 12,000 of these um, people are children. Over 68,552 Palestinians have been injured. It's also important to remember the 394 Palestinians who have been killed in the in the occupied West Bank since October 7. That number is important to keep in mind because before October 7, um, 
observers were talking about the way we were all talking about the ways that 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 um, 2023 had been the bloodiest year on record with over 220 uh, Palestinians killed in by Israeli soldiers and settlers in the West Bank that year. Unfortunately, Israel has a way of reiteratively uh, breaking its own records. Um, and of course, I think um, it is always to remember, it is always important to remember and name the now 1,147 Israelis who were um, killed by Hamas on October 7. Um, I, I want to, before I get to your question about the child, I want to get to um, also relay the kind of pain that um, it that it entails to be not only in this constant grief, but also be gaslit about it. And so one of the things that Joe Biden um, did from the very beginning was to play along with the most vulgar propaganda coming out of the Israeli state machine and um, including uh, questioning um, our, our very count of the dead. And here, and you know, I, I know we'll get a chance to talk more about this in the, in the coming hour, but it's, it's crucial to remember that this is a U.S. war as much as it is an Israeli war on Palestine. Um, so the figure of the child, I, I think it's so important um, to concentrate on this. And, and I think in a way, the child is really um, the embodiment of, of the most innocent actor that you could imagine. And I think from the very beginning, we were uh, uh, subject to, and here by we, you know, I'll go back and forth in who that we is because I hold, like most people, multiple subject positions. And I am a Palestinian and I'm also a U.S. citizen. And I think all of us who aren't in Gaza looking on, you know, from from the very beginning were very clear on the ways that Israeli officials were um attempting to take Palestinians out of the category of the human. And this is a technology that is very familiar to people who study racialization, genocide, massacre, slavery, the history of anti-Blackness in the United States, the transatlantic slave trade, the Armenian genocide, the, the Shoah, the Holocaust, on and on, right? This eviction from the category of the human, this discussion of Palestinians as human animals, right? That there is no, there are no innocents. There are no civilians in Gaza. This kind of, you know, promise of um, and of the 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 Gaza Nakba. And I think what's really important too about the figure of the child is that the child is also the vehicle for the future. Mm -hmm. And I think. Um, you know, the, it, the child is the most difficult to exclude from the category of the human. And I think so many of us have been, I know for myself, I, I won't speak for anyone else but myself. For me, the images of the shredded children or the children mourning the loss of their parents or the dunya who lost her entire family and then lost her leg and then lost her life. And it's this kind of evisceration of the child that is um, so deeply 
painful um, because of what it means for that the the attempt to erase the generations to come because of what it means for for us to look at this kind of shattered innocence and 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 also what it means to balance the betrayal that one feels to look on and the betrayal that one feel, feels to look away it's all of those things happening at once and the, and i and i think what's really important to to keep in mind here is that this did not start on october 7th um there has been a long strategy within Israeli settler colonialism, specifically targeting um, the question of the child. And uh, Nadira Shahob Kavorkian has called this unchilding in her book, mm-hmm. Incarcerated Childhood and the Politics of Unchilding. And what she's referring to with this term is this kind of authorized eviction of children from childhood um, for mm-hmm. political goals. And she, you know, reveals how this this pattern is maintained by, you know, violent, racist, sexist, and class and classist machinery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here, I think it's important to also keep in mind the number of children under Israeli imprisonment um, right now. If you go to Defense for Children International Palestine, you'll find that there are 23 children under administrative detention, 156 children that are security detainees. And according to Defense for Children International, and here I'm quoting, each year approximately 500 to 700 Palestinian children, some as young as 12 years old, are detained and prosecuted in the Israeli military court system. And the most common charge is stone throwing. And so this is part of a broader story of the kinds of how imprisonment is has been since 1967 so crucial to central to Palestinian life. Um, and in the numbers that we do have include um, an estimated 800,000 Palestinians who have gone through this um, imprisonment system. And so I think it's really important to understand those numbers and the role of the child in this process of unchilding within all of that. Mm -hmm. And there, I think another thing to keep in mind is the way that, um, and Julie Petit, an anthropologist of Palestine, has written quite beautifully about this, the way that, especially during the first uprising, which was not the first uprising, but the Intifada, um, mm-hmm. the first uprising under Israeli uh, military occupation in the West Bank that began in 1987. During this time, we see the these huge numbers of children and youth who make it through the, the Israeli um, uh, prison system without habeas corpus, of course, and um, she charts the way that this also becomes a kind of rite of passage, right? A, a, the changing meaning of what it means to be yeah. a Palestinian youth. Um, so I think those are really, really important, um, you know, to think about what this kind of means socially. Yeah. Um, I, I want to just sort of end here with, with what I think is a really crucial point, which is that the target of Israeli force and U.S. supplied weapons in this genocide, any honest observer understands, is the civilian. 
uh, Hamas combatants are the collateral damage of this genocide. And there, as we know, there are no safe zones in the Gaza Strip. What has remained as the final standing city of Rafah is now, you know, the Israelis have starved and cut off all kinds of basic needs from water to electricity to any mm-hmm. kind of life-giving sustenance. And mm-hmm. I think if the global calls for ceasefire are finally heated, um, Israeli and U.S. citizens alike are going to have to come to terms with their support of a, of a, and funding of a genocide that basically targeted children. Um, we yeah, know that yeah. they've made up 40% of this relentlessly climbing death toll. And I think that um, that's going to, those children are going to haunt all of us. And I also just want to say in the end, and here I want to quote the words of the uh, youth-led Palestinian um, nonprofit project in the Gaza Strip, we are not numbers. I think the, the we are not r- numbers reminds us that, you know, the poetry and um beauty of this of these youth and and these child and these children and their dreams and hopes that are now lying under the rubble will live on despite the effort to annihilate them hmm. yeah um that is a, you know in, an incredible account of what's at stake um in in human terms with the you know the escalating death toll and you you know you mentioned the the incursion into Rafa the you know the the just the unbelievable encroachment on the last remaining um, you know place there is no safe place in Gaza but the last remaining refuge in Gaza um, and the kind of crisis that that represents it's it's only at this point that you know governments like the Canadian government I'm you know in the settler colonial state of Canada, myself, it's only now tens of thousands of innocent dead into this uh, war on Gaza that they have decided to call for a ceasefire, aligning at least with the ICJ's demand for some sort of humanitarian allowance. Um, but, you know, this this argument that you've made reminds me that Israel's policy of occasionally, as they call it, mowing the lawn um, when the population reaches a point of unruly size and radicalization um, does target children. It does target generation itself um, in in Gaza. Um, And and yet at the same time, you know, I think this idea that... um, those children must be mourned. They will be mourned is such a kind of radical assertion against the kind of like logic of uh, denying humanity. Um, You know, seeing Palestinians as only, as Rebecca Stein puts it, like legitimate targets. Um, But, you know, Jeremy Scahill talked recently about this in terms of the kind of propaganda campaign that Israel has waged since October 7th, which is almost, you know, almost exclusively in some ways, um, sort of, uh, um, you know, advertise this idea that Hamas and the groups that it kind of led on October 7th um, were inhuman because of their violence to children, right? And there's no sense of the um, obvious hypocrisy of Israel and its allies in the United States 
you know, kind of promoting this fiction that um, there was this kind of, you know, barbarism waged against the, the children of Israel. It was entirely a fabrication, all of it. Um, and one, Scahill says, was designed to, um, the way he puts it, is sell the worst crime against humanity in modern times in order to justify a long-planned siege of Gaza, right? It was violence against children um, that allowed this annihilation uh, or the story of violence against children that allow, allowed this annihilation um, to occur in a lot of ways. Um, so what then happens in the aftermath of the grieving that's happening in Palestine and for Palestine, you know, and, and for Palestine's children in particular, I don't, I don't know. I do want to add, like you were saying about Canada now, finally finding enough dignity. Um, and, and here I don't, I want to distinguish between governments and their peoples because we know that the peoples on the streets from, you know, all across Canada um, mm. have been, calling for an end to this genocide. I think it's also important to remember that in the wake of this, you know, brave and righteous uh, case put forward by South Africa at the ICJ, that not only did these governments take part in continuing to fund and arm Israel with impunity, but they also decided to defund the UNRWA the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, the literal last remaining lifeline for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, part of the it's, plan, right? It, this is the other part of it, right? That, if, you know, I, I was watching Scahill report on this. Tw the story from Israel is that 12 out of 30,000 UNRWA workers that were operating in Palestine um, were complicit in October 7th. Um, and they claim that, you know, the, there are tunnels on, uh, under the building, under the Anwar. And, and immediately, without verifying any of those reports, funding is withdrawn. 90% of the population of Gaza re relies on humanitarian aid for like these basic um, necessities. So it is absolutely disgusting and an attempt to strangle um a people you know um and i don't know that it is being understood that way there's a war happening that is about like the war for the 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 truth of this right you know? right 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 well i think i mean we see this with the kind of abject denialism of figures within the democratic party you know nancy pelosi and yeah. just that you're all china and you're all you know you're all russians when she's talking about the pro-palestine um solidarity or the like immense repression against people calling for palestinian liberation and mm -hmm. i think there's a parallel here that we might think about as we try and imagine a different tomorrow which is it's always so striking to me and i think hala alian the poet talked about this you know this 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 figure of this of the palestinian this impoverished um oppressed, occupied subject mm -hmm. who is the source of such immense threat yeah. that is, a, in a way, 
parallel to what we see around the ways that within, you know, Turtle Island, United States, North America, the kinds of policing around criticism of Israel and its escalation that we have seen in the last decade, mm-hmm. um, that position the most vulnerable as the most at, flo- at fault. And I think what we have to, as we think forward about our strategies, and like I said, uh, the, the very potential for a different tomorrow, we have to be able to kind of um, think through that, that, this, that, the, that the fear that we inspire is, uh, reveals the weakness of the people who have power over us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I think like that point has certainly been made within sort of post-colonial studies, um, you know, to some extent that there is a way in which the kind of like uh, internalizing of these colonial logics is something that kind of like permanently fractures like your own humanity. Like there's something that's compromised in you by it. Um, and I think like tons of power in that sort of theoretical framework for understanding, um, these asymmetries, right. Of power. Absolutely. Um, I mean, on, on that, on that point, I don't know if you saw this came out on, um, Twitter that they were, um, talking about and documenting a feature that came out in Haaretz, um, Hebrew, that um, had a, a cooking show feature about Israeli um, soldiers as they are living in, in the homes of Palestinians in Gaza and cooking in their kitchens oh, yeah. with their food. And it's That's like, fine. while people are starving, while yeah. people are emaciated and, and, and deprived for months and, and and exactly as you said this what this means for how we understand ourselves globally what does it mean that um there are groups of israelis who are mobilizing on the border of gaza to make sure that the no humanitarian aid gets in it's to me it's those kinds of moments that really make me question everything that I know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, honestly, it's, it's hard not to go there. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I was just reading a book uh, called Petro, Petrochemical Planet, Planet uh, by Alice Ma, and she begins with that kind of acknowledgement that, like, you want to maintain this kind of humanist, vitalist ideal, right, Um, that we're all capable of recognizing um, how apathetic, callous, and inhumane we're being. Uh, But then there are these things, these forms of like normalized terror that remind you that actually like there might be something like evil in the world. Um, And it's, it's evil is notions of innocence and evil. These are obviously fraught terms, but um, these are terms that I think we sort of as, people who are trying to, um, you know, decode and, and decipher what's happening are, are, are forced to confront. And, you know, you've served as an editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies um, for almost a decade and have written extensively in that journal. Um, there's one 
you know, one essay that kind of jumped out at me, where which is kind of a retrospective, where you talk about how the journal journal did not simply feature war; it actually like emanated from it. Um, that to me is like a different idea of what a, a of an academic journal does, right? That it is not there to just discuss war, um, you know, to to make it an object of analysis. It is at war. Um, and like, I wondered if you could just sort of speak to what that means for you and what role you see writing playing um, to resist this kind of, um, yeah, this slippage into just total war um, in, in Gaza. And the piece that you're talking about, it's called In the Shadow of War, and it, it came out to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the Journal of Palestine Studies, which is the flagship journal in the English language um, um, in the field. And what I did was I was trying to find a way to commemorate this journal. I basically was trying to look through titles. Um, and I tried to I tried to trace the title of the word war as it showed up um, across time across the fifty years, and it showed up so much that I could only ultimately do the first two decades. And one of the things that I was um, really trying to do in that in that work of tracing sort of the shifts in the field and what it meant and um, its class politics and its gender politics and all of the things like in every field that we you know struggle with and question and challenge and are born of. Um, what I was also trying to do was to think about the archive, and this is something that is really central to. Uh, my own research and my own ways of thinking, which is about what do, how do we understand an archive mm -hmm. and archives in a context where there is no one official state archive right. and in a context in which every single Palestinian Every single Israeli attack on Palestine or the Palestinians has targeted archives. It's crucial for people to understand how knowledge in this last genocide itself has become a target of war. We know that 70% of Gaza schools have been reduced to rubble. We know that Israel has obliterated um, Gaza central archives burned 150 years worth of documents, archival materials. We know that Israel has destroyed every single one of Gaza's universities, as well as destroying the entire cultural landscape, 76 cultural centers, theaters, three theaters, five museums, 15 publishing houses and bookstores, 80 public libraries, over 200 heritage sites, Right. Gaza is uh, 4000 years old. <laughs> it has an incredible array of heritage uh, 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 sites that dotted the Gaza Strip's cultural landscape that are now destroyed. What we you know, what what we're watching alongside this genocide is um, is a is is a is epistemicide, right? This policy that's mandating the destruction of cultural and historic sites, libraries, bookstores, and is very intentionally killing educators. We know that over 94 educators have been killed. We know the 
um, that at this point, the um, numbers of journalists, every day Israel targets journalists, every day they are targeting, you know, the very people who are telling the story. So if we step back, I think one of the things that's so important to do in political work and in imagining ourselves to be part of movements and, and imagining what movements are, are to be is to balance humility with also acknowledging what it is that we do. And I think humbly what I would say is that writing our histories, writing our present, writing um writing Palestinian studies, guarding the possibility of that study is itself a really important act of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea that the um, the cultural erasure, what you call epistemicide, was so extensive. I had no idea. Um, I mean, not only that, but it's so, this has such a long history. So for example, um, in 1982, when Israel um, invades um, Lebanon, they target the PLO archive there. That PLO archive is now in Israeli University libraries. Um, in 1948, there's a film called The Great Book Robbery that that, that um, documents these processes. In 1948, um, it you know it 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 is kind of you know, long documented that people's personal records would actually wind up in places like the Hebrew University Library, that people's um, people's uh, libraries, their entire book collections, right? Mm. So, you know, if you are a U.S. citizen like myself, and I did a lot of my research um, uh, at the Israel State Archive, um where the documents that are um, the documents that are Palestinian uh, uh, documents are all um, basically categorized under a label of um, abandoned abandoned properties and documents. Hmm. So it's this language of abandonment, right, mm-hmm. that erases actually the confiscation and the archival violence um, that that has been at the very foundation of um, of Israel's settler colonial project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as though there, yeah, uh, that it was a land without a people for people without a land. This kind of original rejection of the very existence of yes. Palestinians. It, it, what you described feels like a war on the past, present, and future Absolutely. Uh, of Palestine. Absolutely. And this is also, of course, what the journal is, is engaging with, right? It's, Absolutely. It's, it's a venue that's had all of these like really remarkable interventions. Um, you know, and I think it's too, it's important too, to think about like the connection between this indigenous gr- group and it, and the land, right? Like, the the in terms of the health and the environmental impacts of the occupation, you know, you've got you've got an article where you talk about the false notion that the environment is separate from technology and other human constructions and waste. Like that needs to be pointed out. Uh, I really responded to the idea that ecologies are constituted out of infrastructures. Um, you know that that is true across the board, especially as uh, Darren Barney puts it, like when when uh, settler colonialism kind of manifests as infrastructure, 
um, you know, and, and we're in this moment now, of course, of like climate emergency, of climate catastrophe. And it does strike me that you've got regimes like the one in Israel or Russia or Saudi Arabia, elsewhere, that are willing to, you know, embark on these campaigns of mili- military aggression, encroachment, um, without any regard for the ecological impact, right? It's just not even, it's not even registered. Um, because there are obviously more, um, in a way, I guess, pressing or immediate or salient aspects of the of the annihilation happening. But you're also annihilating the environment. Um, you write that logics of scarcity drive some of these conflicts. That the this this is the kind of force of elimination, as you put it, um, and the relationship between that and like exploitation. But you know what's interesting to me is that you're talking about how water, especially is like this unbelievably scarce resource uh, that's sometimes also a source of like social organization and radicalization. Did you want to talk at all about how this can be brought to bear on the struggle for survival in Gaza? You know, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. Those are things that invoke this idea, right, of like being being uh, bordered by water. You know, why should we be focusing on water um, as much as we are? on the carnage here? Absolutely. I mean, I think the question of land and water in this way are really beautifully interconnected. And I'll start by saying that, you know, um, one of the really important lessons that Indigenous studies gives us, and this is something that my dear friend and colleague Rana Barakat was at Birzeit University, um, sort of invites us to think about to ask the question, not who does the land belong to, but to insist that we belong to her. And I think we can make that same kind of insistence for the water. Um, and, and you know, for, 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 I guess now, I mean, you know, sometimes you look back on your own work and you think, oh, I've been, I've been worried about this for a while. And I think living in California has meant a kind of constant confrontation with climate catastrophe um, and its temporalities. And so I've been thinking about climate catastrophe and Palestine together for many years now. And I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, Israeli and U.S. officials often depict Gaza as this kind of island, right, as sort of floating in isolation historically and mm-hmm. floating in isolation from um, the rest of Palestine and the rest of the world. And really nothing could be further from the truth, because in fact, um, the genocide in Gaza is really actually really concretely intensifying this age of global boiling um, um, that we are in right now. And so here it's useful to remember that 2023 was the hottest year on record mm-hmm. um, and that uh, in, in November 2023 and for the first time ever, global temperatures had reached two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial rates. It might be good to remember that 2023 was the year of the Hawaii wildfires that Uh, devastated Lahaina, the year of extreme flooding in Rwanda and Congo, a cyclone in Malawi, devastating earthquakes, Morocco, Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, Turkey, Syria, earth-shattering flooding and storms in Libya. And this list is by no means exhaustive. For me, 
within all of this, we kind of we kind of can look to Palestine um, not as an object of sympathy or fear or even salvation, but as a kind of paradigm about how do we survive um, this age of catastrophe. And here I want to say, um, you know, that the first 60 days of this war alone burned at least 150,000 tons of coal. And this kind of environmental catastrophe is beyond what we might imagine. Um, and, and as we know, experts have used satellite data to actually map the damage. And they have, they have shown that the genocide has changed the land itself. Um, the Gaza Strip is a now, now a different color from space than it used to be. It's a different texture. And so, you know, as we had said um, earlier, it's really important to remember that this is an Israeli, uh, a U.S. war as much as it is an Israeli war. It's important right. to remember that since 1948, the U.S. has gifted Israel more than $260 billion, mostly in military aid, that this does not include the $14.3 billion that Biden pledged to Israel in November, that the kinds of artillery that are that Israel is using from the 2,000-pound bunker busters that have targeted Palestinians to the U.S.-made joint direct uh, attack munitions that turn earth into liquid and render instant death to anyone within 100 feet of the bomb's impact. All of these artillery and these billions of dollars granted by the United States um, in 2023 alone contribute to this generalized state of climate catastrophe in which we all live. And so the waste of this water of this war from carbon to white phosphorus will live on for generations in the soil, in the earth, in our very bodies. And so, you know, this, you know, I mean, it's like the parliamentarian who said, oh, we should nuke um, Gaza, you know, the Israeli parliamentarian. And I I don't know if um, he forgot how close Gaza was to Israel, right? So it's this kind of, in fact, we our destinies are absolutely inter, inter, interlinked. And, and we also know um, the kind of releasing of salt water into um, the, the Isra- Israel releasing salt water into um, Gaza's tunnels, which will, which will essentially entirely degrade all of Gaza's lands to such an extent that it will become unlivable. But the thing about it is if you rendering life unlivable in a place that is so close to where you actually live, that is going to have influence on you and nothing that you do Hmm. in Gaza is isolated from what is happening to the rest of the world. And Hmm. so I think it's that kind of, hubris that is very difficult to make sense of because you know at the end of the day we're all going to have to reside on this earth uh together and so i think you know there is a way to think about all of these cascading disasters as as of as as of a piece right um they do they are as you say of a piece i think like what you're seeing in the in the wastelanding of of gaza is a sort of leeching of that cruelty into the land. Yes. Um, that is entirely dependent on this like uh, bordered thinking, this like f- thinking uh, uh, that is entirely about uh, 
um, the kind of sanctity of borders uh, that, yeah, as, as Scahill says, ignores the fact that, um, you know, Israel cannot live in peace a stone's throw away from what is effectively a concentration camp filled with 2.3 million people that are deprived of anything vaguely resembling a human existence. That is not tenable. Um, and yet, you know, this kind of bordered thinking, so to speak, um, makes it, you know, operate in this kind of place of metastasis, I guess, for Israel, right? That within the boundaries of Israel, um, the story that Israel tells itself is that that is sustainable, right? And that to me is is the terrifying thing. Um, but I, I do think like you've made a number of powerful statements alongside, for example, some co-authors about, for you know, uh, the the question of queering Palestine too, for example, you know, like this, this is itself kind of a discourse that I think is really rich when it comes to trying to explore uh, where you, you know, what you call misconceptions themselves that endanger the struggle for liberation, right? So um, there are these misconceptions about sort of queer politics or, or queer possibilities in Palestine. And certainly Israel likes to see itself as the only democracy in the Middle East or, you know, a particularly progressive liberal society. And that makes it more human, perhaps, like according to the sort of Western Eurocentric optic. Um, but what you're saying in this piece is that a queer politics can actually subvert certain notions of sovereignty. Like it can sub subvert bordered thinking, binary thinking um, that, you know, obviously we're seeing creates this ser serious issue when it comes to imagining alternative futures. Um, so I wondered if you could kind of talk about, you know, why so often Zionist policies and discourse, I'm quoting the piece, uh, Zionist policies and discourses portray Palestinian aspirations for freedom as incompatible with queer rights and freedoms. But at the same time, um, you write Palestinian nationalist discourse discourses do demand sexual conformity and look at LGBTQ rights as undermining Palestinian identity and unity. So like that itself is sort of an impasse. Why might finding a way to resolve that impasse be important for finding a path to liberation? Thank you. I'll say two things. I mean, I think we can follow the lead of queer liberation who say, you know, queer as in free Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think, you know, these voices from people like Jasper Poir to, mm -hmm. um, you know, Al-Qaus in, in Palestine, those are organizers, um, many of the authors in the in this special issue that you talk about. Um, who really have tried to relay, you know, how do we center both queer liberation and Palestinian liberation as mutually kind of constituting. And I think here, you know, I think there was a, there was an, a, an Israeli soldier who proudly, um, I uh, proudly was carrying or pitching the rainbow flag on the beach in Gaza and saying, though, for the first time we have pride in Gaza and, and you know, queer commentators and organizing uh, organizers say, you know, there's no pride in genocide. There's no pride in settler colonialism. Right. Um, so I think 
the questions around pinkwashing, right? Um, and there's the Israeli policy of saying, you know, we are a safe haven for um, queer people and look at the barbarism of these, you know, um, Palestinians, and it's often in deeply Islamophobic terms, um, mm-hmm. is a kind of tried and true strategy that is really relying on civilizational hierarchies to exen- to again exclude people from the category of the human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's saying that part. The second part that's kind of informs my own political and um, work and my and my research is how is it that we kind of refuse the epistemological trap that we're often put in as people who are colonized and writing the history of the colonized in which we are often centering the colonizer and the settler as the origin and the ends of politics and I think mm-hmm. we in order to imagine liberation we have to do decenter some of that and begin asking the questions about our own political formations, about the the racism, the sexism, the classism, the homophobia that punctuate our own histories and our past and our present. I don't think, I think for too long, colonized people often felt like, well, if we engage those questions, then we're actually proving um, the colonizer, right? So, so, so we'll deal with all those questions after liberation. Mm. You can't deal with those questions after. You can't defer those questions. Mm. You have to deal with them in the present. And I think, of course, there are, you know, in the midst of an, of the urgency of genocide, we're not going to be necessarily centering questions of this sort, but I think the work has to constantly be centering what do we understand as freedom for all. And I think that kind of work in the in the medium and the long term necessitates asking the difficult questions about ourselves um, and remembering that, you know, even if there were no even if in some magical counter reality there was no colonialism we it wouldn't be that we would be living in nirvana right now right we have to kind of engage those hierarchies of civilization and um those the all of the structures of exclusion that we ourselves are engaged in and for me that has always entailed a thoroughgoing critique of um the nation state as a structure mm-hmm. and, a, and a source of ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I talked to Ingrid Waldron, um, who's a, you know, African Canadian sort of expert, I guess you'd say, or leading voice in environmental racism. And what she says in in her book, "There's Something in the Water," is that there are all these boundary making projects that constitute social hierarchies that themselves are like at the root of so much of the violence that, um, you know, racialized people, let's say, uh, experience. So, um, sovereignty is, is, is central to that. Um, the kind of perpetuation of that, the normalizing of it, uh, I think. And so it, it makes sense to continually come back to that. Um, and I think maybe it makes sense to talk about your book, men of capital here, right? Like, um, this is a book that uh, um, theorizes sort of the relationship between Palestinian identity to notions of the state. 
you write in that book that given the widely scattered realities of Palestinians, the continued siege and occupation of Gaza, the occupation of the West Bank and the persistence of statelessness, it's compelling to search the Palestinian historical record for what went wrong. But in, a, in such a search, it's almost inevitable that nationalism, its lack, its strength, or its weakness will stand as a metonym for politics. Um, so it feels like you're, you're, you're saying like, you're, you're trying to do a diagnosis, like what went wrong? And you see at the core of it, like the state, um, and I think like the question you ask in the book about why invoking the idea of the state has to be the precondition for politics is just really, really crucial. Um, you're basically asking why statehood must always be what you call the measuring stick for whether people can remain where they are. Um, you know, uh, it can be too abstract, though. Like even when I'm talking about boundary making proje projects and, you know, uh, the creation of social hierarchies, I think like. You can lose people in the abstraction of it. But in, in the case of the question of Palestine, like it's inescapable, it's material, it's about life or death. So why does, you know, why do you keep coming back to it is, is perhaps the question. Um, well, thank you again. I mean, I'll, I'll step back to just say um, a couple things about the book Men of Capital, which is that the, that the book is primarily um, an engagement with a group of actors who have been erased by both the settler colonial historiography and the nationalist historiography. The settler colonial historiography, as you have laid out, you know, land without a people, people without a land, right? The Zionist mantra, the kind of um, civilizational narratives, the backward Arabs, the people outside of history, etc. That's mm -hmm. that will be more familiar to our listeners. The nationalist historiography also basically depicted a pre forty eight Palestine that was um, that was peopled by either like an honorable but ignorant peasantry versus this kind of decadent, mm -hmm. um, selfish uh, nobility, mm -hmm. and what. My book does is said, no, there's a whole group of people in the middle. And this group of people were thinking about profit and progress as intimately linked. They were, um, they called themselves men of capital and women of thrift. They were this nascent middle class. They were really invested in profit and capital accumulation. So why, why, why tell that history? Um, for a couple of reasons. One is because um, I think it's really important for people to understand apropos getting out of colonized kind of epistemological traps is that capitalist transformation in most of the world to, was taking place um, even before European presence and dominance, right? So capitalist transformation throughout most of the world, um, but especially the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa, is happening through the commercialization of agriculture, not through industrialization. So there was already a land market in Palestine before European influence increases the tension around this kind of broad scale process of um, large plantations being owned by absentee urban landlords such that the actual people who lived on the land were not the people who were selling the land. Mm 
And that process is happening throughout the Middle East and North Africa. What is that? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because we have to understand what are the intellectual traditions and formations of our own social landscapes that have been informed by capitalism. So one of the findings of the work is that, you know, we tend to think of pan-Arabism as inextricable from Gamal Abdel Nasser's more socialist project in the 1950s. But the actors that I and many, many others have studied actually show a kind of pan-Arab project that was contingent on understandings of capitalist utopia. So the idea here isn't simply to unearth, recover and recover these stories, but rather to critique them. So that's, that's part. So my contention is to say, perhaps we ought not to always look at what went wrong, but rather to also look at what actually was happening. Right. So, so that's one part. The second part is the question of the state. Okay. So you understood me absolutely correctly, which is that I'm saying, um, people's rights to live on the land that they resided on for hundreds and hundreds of years should not be determined about uh, based on whether or not, uh, based on what uh, boundaries nation, uh, you know, um, national or imperial powers drew on a map. We know that maps are actually violent processes of um, imperial and colonial formation. We know that they are constructions on the territory itself. And I say this because one of the Zionist talking points will be to say, you know, well, Palestinians never had sovereignty over the land and thus they don't exist as such, right? And I think here what's really important is to look at the kind of deeper history, not that deep, right, uh, which is the history of um, the mandatory rule um, that happens uh, um, post-World War One, where the British and the French are essentially British and French governments are essentially taking the spoils of of the of uh, World War One, and taking over the colonies of the three empires that had met their demise: the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman. And it is in that. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, distribution of the spoils of war that we see the constitutive contradiction of international law in which there is all this lip service to self-determination, uh, uh, a concept long kind of celebrated as a, you know, a creation of Woodrow Wilson that was in fact first introduced by Lenin. And so we know that longer story of those battles um, over uh, utopic imaginaries. And, and what's important to understand about the mand mandatory rule is that it was um, it was a, a kind of thinly guised form of imperialism, of colonialism. Um, the the one thing that distinguished it from previous forms of imperialism was the promise of an eventual state. So what we're talking about here are the British and the French ruling the Eastern Mediterranean. We see the French are in um, what would become Syria and Lebanon. Um, we see the British in Iraq, Transjordan, and Palestine. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's happening here is a politics of deferral. 
you will get your, so within the mandate document, what it actually says, and this is article 22 of that document, which says, yes, these people might eventually, they will eventually be able to be independent, but we're going to support them because they can't stand up on their own. So you see here an infantilization of the colonized subject. Um, and yeah. so all of this is happening in an area that people um, who, you know, lived on these lands for years would understand as greater Syria, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> who um, people had experienced it as El Sham, right? So what the invitation here is to think beyond these kinds of 20th century boundaries is the only way to understand people's relationship to the land. The distinction mm -hmm. between Palestine and the rest of these lands is that at no point in Palestine could the Palestinian Muslim and Christian majority um, actually have access to a state. Why? Well, because in 1917, the Balfour Declaration, which would later become the juridical infrastructure of British mandatory rule, essentially promised the British facilitation of the Jewish national home um, while safeguarding, quote unquote, the rights, the civil and religious rights of the, quote unquote, non-Jewish people. What's mm -hmm. happening here in the Balfour Declaration? Number one, Jewish becomes this ethno-national identity in Palestine. Right. And number two, the Palestinian Muslims and Christians become partitioned from Palestinian Jews who are at this point 5% of the entire population. So what you see is a partition of people deserving versus undeserving mm. of a state, people who have access to political rights and those who don't, right? So from the very beginning, the Balfour Declaration is premised on the denial of Palestinian political rights and the denial of a Palestinian peoplehood. So when Zionists use this mantra of a people without, you know, a, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land, they did not imagine that there were no Palestinians or people on the land. They said that those people were not a unified people, that they mm -hmm. were not deserved, that they were a motley crew undeserving of political rights and that they could either be had for a price or moved without incident. Yeah. And more than a hundred years later, the Palestinians have proved time and again that those estimations were false. And from its inception, Israel wanted to confiscate as much of the land with as few of the Palestinians on it um, uh, 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 as possible. And so what I'm trying to say here is I reject the formula that we don't exist as a people because we had been from the very inception of the modern nation state as we know it today in this interwar era under colonial rule uh, was premised on the erasure of our peoplehood. Yeah, I mean, that is so powerfully put. It's just, it, it conveys this idea that what we're talking about now is the outcome of a kind of colonial settler social engineering, right? Partitioning, dispossession um, that like leads to the contemporary moment where 
the choices are unbelievable are unimaginably limited where as as nadia yakub said to me you can disappear slowly you can disappear quickly uh or you can you can fight right um and it it, it the, the the other thing i learned from men of capital is that you know the the war is not always just a kind of military campaign it's not always an explosive you know encroachment it's also about um like a, a, a kind of harnessing of the basic things of life and, and the withdrawal of like calories. Like you write about calories as like a basic unit in some ways of dispossession. Um, there's a, there's a moment where you talk about the British colonial government embarking on a series of attempts to count and regulate subjects and territories that use the calorie in the 1940s and the cost of living as technologies of rule in Palestine. Um, which is like so striking, right? That it wasn't an obsession with numbers, you say, or a fascination with omniscience. It wasn't yeah. just biopolitical in that in that sort of demographic sense. Yeah. It was biopolitical in the warlike, belligerent, uh, racist sense, right? Yeah. Of you know, uh, uh, you say the 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 fear of people and the exigencies of war propelled them to uh, action. This is this to me was like you know uh, really illuminating this history of the kind of deliberate policy of starving and killing civilians in Gaza through these restrictions, you know, what does it reveal and how does it connect to the current moment for you? Great. So I'll go back to, I want to go back to, because I think this is linked to this question. One of the thing that, one of the things that's really for me always so um, compelling is to look at how, uh, policies like rationing or calorie counting influence and shape people across boundaries and, and temporalities. So when I was doing the research for this book, I was really shocked at the ways in which British policy in uh, British policy resonated between how people, poor people were governed in London and how colonized people were governed in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So it's those, it's those comparable experiences that to me are really, really important in order for us to understand again, a different kind of future. Let me explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. You know, what you do as a historian is to take words and realize over time that they have histories. So, you know, in the dissertation, I had really kind of taken this, this uh, theme of the cost of living for granted. <laughs> mm. and, and then I started thinking, what is, you know, what is the history of the cost of living? And lo and behold, I found a relationship to um, mass political movements and their containment that I could not have imagined. The calorie is invented as a way of calculating energy in 1896 by someone named Wilbur Atwater. And this is important because it echoes with um, kind of the uh, environmental scientists in the moment that we're living in. So what begins to happen at the turn of the century is this whole field of nutrition where people are saying it's not how much you eat, but what you actually eat that really determines your well-being. And governments in London uh, uh, and the United States are really um, 
invested in denying these findings because they are worried about what it's going to mean for them having to give people the material support to eat well. And so you see these entrenched battles around the science of nutrition. You see them in long hours of debate in par- in the British Parliament. You see them in long kinds of struggles um, in the United States. So there's two breaking points in this history. One happens um, in the United States around the late 19th century, where scientists, um, nutrition nutritional scientists make allies with business owners. Okay, so here we should watch out for, you know, scientists are always a heterogeneous group and there's always, you know, people across the political spectrum. So we have to take that really seriously. Right. We have to also be organizing alongside our our scientist comrades and colleagues. And so um, a group of scientists join forces with um, business owners so that they can come up with something called the cost of living in the late 19th century when the Communist Party in the United States is at its height, right? Something that might be very difficult for, for us to imagine at this point. And they come together and they say, okay, explain to us what is the most, what is the base amount of food, of money people need to feed themselves so we can keep them on the factory floor and away from the street. Hmm. And thus you see the cost of living emerge as a calculation of political containment. In the United Kingdom, the calorie and the science of nutrition does not ascend until until, uh, war makes it a necessity. Hmm. So the British don't actually start using caloric intake and nutritional standards until World War II. And when they do it, they racialize it. They say, okay, well, if you are um, Asian, you need to, you you don't need to eat as much because mm. you're used to being outside and you're used to, you're smaller and you're, you, you have this race to body. And so it's this, you know, and the, these racialized calculations come into the record in the League of Nations. So all of that to say two things, the, the, the calculations that make up what we understand as self-evident economic categories are ones we should question. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. one. Two, in order for us to imagine different futures, we have to study the ways that these calculations have been mobilized to keep different kinds of people down, whether it is communists in the United States or uh, European Jewish people uh, uh, struggling against the uh, Nazi genocidal fascism in, in, in the 1940s or Palestinians in Gaza today. And so what you have, um, and this is actually something that begins in just to get us to um, the present, which is, I think, and this is what you were um mentioning that Nadia Yaqub said, I think we have to look at the policy, the Israeli policy in Gaza as one that is has been for since 2007 with the election of Hamas, one of a very concerted politics of slow death mm. that has been at warp speed since October 7. And with the very, um, in this in this moment of September 2007, when Hamas takes control of Gaza, the Israeli cabinet at that point was restrict, restricting the passage of goods, fuel, and people to and from the Strip, 
And they prepared in January 28th something called a document called the Red Lines, which prescribed the quote unquote humanitarian minimum of this policy. And basically, what the policy and the siege um, aimed for, in the words of Israeli officials, was to quote, allow for subsistence without the development of malnutrition. So it's keeping people just hungry enough, right? And so here, what we see is that um, eventually the quantities that were eventually cleared to enter were smaller than the quote-unquote daily humanitarian portion of the red lines. And the aim, in the words of one of the officials of the coordinator of government activities in the territories or COGA was, quote, no prosperity, no development, no humanitarian crisis, end of quote. So it's this really longstanding starving of a people. And you see, if you look at some of the images of, uh, you know, I've been really fixated on, you know, it's good we started with children because I've been really fixated on, um, saving videos and photographs of children making life amidst the certainty of death. And I've spent time looking at these children and, you know, they look small for their age. Mm. And it's because they have been under these uh, 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 decades of, you know, that the entire strip has been under decades of a rule of scarcity, intentional scarcity. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that once you see it, you can't unsee it, nor should you want to. I did want to kind of before um, we end uh, uh, point to your short essay on the matter of time. Right. Because it's something we've kind of circled around a number of times and talked about a bit. You write in that piece that today Palestinians plan not for the future, but despite it. Um, giving, given impending environmental doom, you know, the significance of the matter of time and the insistence on planning despite the future might be useful lessons for us all. Um, you know, to me, like just that, uh, um, can, has a lot of weight and it, you know, doesn't just, it doesn't just sort of reaffirm your, your knowledge, which, you know, listeners can can tell how much you know you're just like engaging with this stuff but also just this power to like articulate um what you earlier called like an eviction from humanity like that to me is what you're talking about here when you when you refer to the ways in which palestinians are are you know the the children that you say and trying to appreciate life in this kind of you know abyss of of like violence like they're if they imagine the future at all they're doing it despite the kind of eviction from humanity and from the future. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you wanted to kind of speak to what you were thinking about when you wrote that reflection, what you meant, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, fighting against a future that is foreclosed in this moment. What I mean by the, in this piece, the matter of time is I've been really kind of um, sort of, immersed in thinking about the temporal rhythms of what it means to be both Palestinian and living in the modern era that we live in or whatever we want to call this era. Um, And I think building on the things that we talked about before, I would say that since 1917, Palestinians have been really um, uh, uh, um, living under this kind of politics of deferral. 
you know, what, what has been called in other contexts, the waiting, the waiting room of history, wait until you're, you know, worthy enough to stand on your own two feet, right? And, and I think, whereas for the rest of greater Syria and Iraq, um, 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 people would attain, um, even if in a very, albeit, you know, limited nation state form, um, Palestinians kind of remained in that politics of deferral, this temp, this permanent temporary, this, this politics of waiting, the way that settler time, uh, um, and its investment in a linear prog progressive future that is based on this kind of politics of extraction and denial, the way that it necessarily holds us in this permanent temporary, you know, I mean, when I look at the kind of buffer zone that Egypt is building now in the Sinai, right, I am filled with dread over what it might mean, you know, to, to live in a corridor in a buffer zone in, in, in the Sinai desert. Um, you know, what I've learned from uplifting Palestinian voices and listening and learning from one another has been to say, well, perhaps we take this equation of settler time and look at the ways that being in this condition of the permanent temporary, perhaps we can reframe all of this to understand Palestine as a place of an abundance of lessons. And the first lesson here is to is something that everyone might listen to which is this reality that we don't that that the that the crisis that we, that the the rolling catastrophes that we're in have made it clear that we don't know what tomorrow will bring in our own country Look at, I mean, you're in Canada, but in the United States, look at the coming year of what the political electoral scene looks like. Mm -hmm. Look yeah. at the levels of, you know, climate catastrophe across Turtle Island, right? I have learned myself from just listening to everyday people in California who are now begun to mitigate their promise, the, their, the, mitigate their um, faith in the inevitability of a better tomorrow. The students I teach and the students I'm honored to learn from know that things don't always get better. They mm -hmm. live that reality. And so here I think that um, Palestine can teach us how to basically center the idea that we're gonna live to fight another day. <laughs> And that the kind of realities that we live in require that kind of day-to-day -day, uh, 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 humility. Um, and I think also, you know, Palestine has a number of other lessons that it that it can um, offer us. And and here I think is a really important lesson um, that's that's really crucial for us to center, which is that you know. Um, Palestine really brings together European nationalism's internal enemy and its external or its internal victim and its external victim. And by its internal victim, I think it's really important for us to remember and honor the, um, you know, the, the reality that anti-Semitism in Europe in the 19th century was based on this 
idea of racial science that categorized people as biologically irredeemable that should be subject to the eviction, uh, their uh, uh, eviction from humanity. We have right. seen what this looks like. We understand that racialization to be parallel to the colonization of black and brown people across the world. And we understand also um, that the racialization of Jewish people in Europe would lead to industrial scale genocide. And that genocide um, of, under Nazi rule was one that was honed in Central Africa as the recently departed president of Namibia, um, Hage Gengob reminded us after the historic ICJ ruling in South Africa's brave and righteous case therein. Um, and here I want to say that Zionism, it's important to understand that Zionism was one response of many to this ubiquity of anti-Semitism in Europe, and that it would not become the most popular or the most prevailing response until the rise of um, Hitler to power in 1933. The tragedy of Zionism is that it was an attempt to exit um, from these European racializing practices that Cedric Robinson, the Black radical tradition, have traced, analyzed, and dismantled. But the tragedy of Zionism is that it's attempting to leave Europe to exit these hierarchies, but it, when it arrives to Palestine, it refashions them. So I think the first lesson that Palestine teaches us is to imagine freedom both against and beyond the framework of national territorial sovereignty in the in in the idea that our you know the, our problem can't also always be our solution we need to figure out how to think and feel beyond the nation state yep um, um i 100% agree um and I, you know, I, I concede that it, it feels like it's against all odds that we're making that imperative. Uh, but I don't care. Like, I, I, I agree um, with the kind of oppositional spirit of that. Um, and and I, I don't care about the odds of it working. You know, I think it's, it's obviously at the root and we need to be addressing this issue at like the root. And again, like, I just think you're, you're, you're a very powerful speaker when it comes to trying to kind of connect these dots for people. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. I just, because I do think it's really important, this question that I like the second thing that I want to say, which is that I think what Palestine teaches us is to center radical empathy. Mm -hmm. And here I think the weaponization of anti-Semitism to silence critique of Israel has meant that we turn away from that history. And I believe that actually we have to continue centering it and follow the lead, the long and honorable lead of Jewish anti-Zionists, in particular in this moment, JVP. And I think therein, I think it's also really, really important to hold the history of the genocide of the Jewish people, which in Hebrew is Shoah, which means mm -hmm. catastrophe, and the mm -hmm. history of the Nakba, which also means catastrophe in Arabic, together, which is not to make them comparable or in any way parallel, because that's shallow and ahistorical, but rather to look at the Shoah and the Nakba together to think about the centrality 
of catastrophe for both Jewish, for both Palestinians and Jewish people. In this last sentence, I said Jewish, I didn't say Israeli. And here I think it's really important for us. The other lesson that this question brings to the fore is how much language itself is a product of history. And that we have to dismantle the languages that we've received. So earlier when I was talking about 1917 and Palestinian Jews, the thing that happens is with European Jewish settlement coming into Palestine, that category of Palestinian Jews in, in for the most part disappears from, the, from records because it gets brought into the, um, the broader category of the Yishuv, what European Jewish people call themselves, the settlement community. So what I mean here by the question of language is, look at the binaries that we understand as crucial to the, to the history of Palestine um, and Israel. And here I just want to look at two binaries, Jewish and Zionist and Arab and Jewish. Jewish and Zionist are all, are kind of have been taught to us as synonyms, but they are not, right? You can be Jewish and not a Zionist. You can be Zionist and not be Jewish. I know this sounds simplistic, but we still have to say it, right? Like Judaism is the world's first Abrahamic monotheistic religion. It's 4,000 years old. Zionism is a nationalist political movement that began in the 19th century. It's really important to continue um, breaking down that seemingly synonymous, those seemingly synonymous categories. The second set is Arab and Jewish. And here I think it's really important for people to understand that basically until the 12th century, most Jewish people lived under Muslim and Arab rule. The category of Arab Jewish is a long historical one. In fact, there was a language called Judeo-Arabic, which was Arabic and Hebrew letters. And that is the language that figures like Maimonides, who's one of the most important Jewish philosophers, wrote in, right? When he lived in Fustat, which was Cairo at the time. And so it's really important to think about, and Palestine really invites us to think about, the ways in which um, Arab, the, the, you know, Arab Jewish became an impossibility to be both Arab and Jewish became an impossibility as a result of these ethno-national conflicts, right? They became, an, that category becomes an impossibility both because of Zionism and Arab nationalism. And we kind of, we really have to reject those binaries. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, gets us a little bit back to um, children and storytellers. I think the question of the power of storytelling is one of the most compelling ones that um, Palestinians offer us. I think there's such a long Palestinian tradition of storytelling as a way not just to reflect history, but to shape it. And the people I rely on here are um, you know historians like Rosemary Sayer who kind of first shaped the practice of oral history to tell um, the, the to tell Palestinian stories, and she reminds us that telling our stories is a way of living despite catastrophe, a way of perceiving the world and acting towards it. And here, I think 
we got to keep listening to the storytellers on the ground in Gaza, you know, veteran journalists. I mean, Wa'el Dahdouh is now in, in Qatar, but, you know, so many of us watched this veteran journalist as he lost so many members of his family and continued showing up to tell the story to, you know, um, influencers turned journalists like Bissan Auda to the youngest journalist in Gaza now, Lama Jamous, who is this wonderful nine-year-old who has, you know, 700,000 followers on Instagram and who is telling the story of what's happening um, in Gaza from the perspective of a child. Yeah, I mean, there's a, so many examples, right, of the of the persistence of that steadfastness in this yeah. moment of like unreal uh, torment, and you know uh, that is you know there's a there's in that some sense of if not hope, um, you know wonder, like to think that life can persist in spite of that is unbelievable, and and yeah, I, I shared the sense that like. The story that will be told when this violence is stopped um, will matter. It will it will matter. It will determine, you know, because now Israel is basically waging war like every two years. Like it's now utterly banal, the war on this scale. Uh, the number that you cited, and we really didn't kind of dig into this, of, you know, something like $250 billion gifted to Israel from the United States is part of that story. That needs Absolutely. to be told. Like this is a joint U.S.-Israel attack, Absolutely. Um, and that needs to, I think, be part of the, as it were, the narrative. But I just, you know, appreciate again the the wealth of knowledge and just your like um, your ability to recount these stories um, for us because I think at the very least we need to continue paying attention and we need to keep talking about what's happening. Because um, there's enormous danger in allowing it to happen without um, eyes on Gaza, without concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much.